Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Back when we started Truth Over Tribe, I had more than one person tell me that I needed to check out a different podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Now, I'd heard of it before because it had gotten a lot of attention. Many people were saying it's one of the best podcasts out there. And I think part of the reason is because the two hosts, they came from different sides of the political aisle. They don't see everything eye to eye. And yet they were talking about the news. They were talking about culture like normal people who can disagree or agree to disagree. (laughs) Their names are Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. They have written multiple books, including their most recent book, Now What?, which is really just about how do you have these kinds of difficult conversations with people you disagree with? I think you're going to love this conversation. They are a fantastic duo. Sarah and Beth, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Well, thanks Thanks for for having us. It's fantastic to have you guys here. I'm sure people who listen to our show have also listened to your show, Pantsuit Politics. But for those who haven't, could you just give us a brief introduction? How did you meet and how did you start a podcast together? We went to college together. We were sorority sisters. It was a very small university, a liberal arts university in Kentucky, about 1,100 students. And, you know, we stayed connected via Facebook as people did, old people like us back in the early aughts. (laughs) Back in the day. (laughs) Back in the early aughts. And we reconnected when we both started having kids over natural childbirth and we're kind of having conversations around that. And then I was hosting a parenting blog at the time and Beth did some guest posting. And she had one post in particular that really took off that was very well received called Nuanced. And I thought, hmm, I've been batting around the idea of a podcast for a long time because my husband was harassing me to start a podcast. He was like, you'll be so good at it. You got to start a podcast. You got to start a podcast. It was good advice in 2015, I got to say. And I reached out to Beth and said, would you ever be interested in co-hosting a political podcast? Because I knew we were on opposite ends of the spectrum at the time. And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry, we'll work that part out. And then we were off to the races. We did a test call for about 45 minutes that... I said, we're not going to do this anymore unless we're recording because our conversational flow was very, very good from the beginning because we have complementary personalities is what I'll say. (laughs) Although it's funny, you know, I tell this story that I asked her, but I dug up the email exchange. And really what happened is she said we should have our own cable show because (laughs) we have such a good flow. And then I said, well, wait, I don't know about a cable show, but I have been thinking about a podcast. And then we kind of went from there. 
Well, well, you guys obviously picked well. Your podcast has been incredibly, incredibly successful, I know. And in the early days, you guys were modeling for people how to talk from different sides of the political spectrum. So what was the hardest part in those first you know, few years doing a podcast? What was the hardest part of those kinds of conversations? I think the hardest part is just that we didn't know each other as adults. We only knew the college versions of each other and a lot had transpired in our lives and in our personalities since then. And so we were very careful with each other in the beginning, trying to be really honest and open and learn from the process of talking without alienating each other. Because I think we did both know from the beginning, this is a person I want to learn more from and be around. And I want this to be a relationship. I can tell that you know, she's not the same person I knew in college and I'm not either. And so I want this to be a strong relationship more than a podcast that people are going to tune into. I didn't think anybody would listen besides like my mom and some of the readers of Sarah's blog. And so it was really more about navigating our personalities than navigating the politics to me. And I think that has stayed a guiding light for us. Okay, so dig in there for a second on personalities. What are your personality differences and what made that challenging? Well, I run hot and Beth runs cool. (laughs) I'm a passionate person. I'm particularly extroverted. I'm an Enneagram one. I'm a Leo. I'm all the things that you would wrap up into a package that just runs hot and has strong opinions. And Beth is, you know, calmer, more peaceful. She's an Enneagram two. And she's way more introverted than I am. Although I do feel like those labels have reached the end of their lifespan for what it's worth. And so, you know, you see all that. And I want to add to your first question, too, with these now knowing sort of the outlines of our personality. What was hard in the beginning, I think, particularly for Beth, is that she was you know, serving as a stand-in for the side of the political spectrum that was undergoing dramatic changes, (laughs) you know, like, I've been a Democrat since I was 18 years old, and it means mostly the same thing. It's always meant with some changes, but, you know, to be a Republican in 2015, it was a shifting landscape. Like, there were just some dramatic changes going on that we all felt as Americans, much less just one side of the political spectrum. And I think that, you know, I didn't appreciate at the time and have only sort of begun to appreciate now just how difficult that was to be under the weight of all those expectations ever shifting. Some people knew what they thought a Republican meant. Beth thought she knew what a Republican meant. Other people had very different expectations and felt free to email her about what a Republican meant. And so I think that that was really, really hard. Yeah. Beth, share a little bit more about that, your experience. I mean, you guys started this podcast, was that in 2015? Is that right? November of 2015. Oh, perfect timing. Man, you nailed it. So you start this podcast right at the moment that Donald Trump is really beginning to come onto the scene. The Republican Party begins to go through some seismic shifts over the next six years. Just talk about your experience. I mean, how did you navigate that? Well, let me say that another personality characteristic that's relevant here is that I am not a person who feels a strong degree of affiliation to anything. Mm. I am happy to quit a job. I am happy to change my denomination church-wise. Like, I like to try things in the world and patch them together. So I don't affiliate hardcore with anything. So I wasn't even a good Republican by the good Republican standard that I thought applied. I had lots of views that were much more moderate, sometimes even progressive, And so I was surprised by how important that label was to listeners from the beginning and how much they expected me to be a stand-in 
for a good Republican with a very strong sense of partisanship. And I basically had a folder of emails called Republican men breaking up with me because that's what would happen. People would listen for a while. They were really interested in the dynamic between the two of us. I was shocked at how many men said to us, and graciously, I really appreciate this. They would say, I've never heard two women talk about politics without a man being present in the conversation. It's something really different. And I loved that. And then I would get the big but. I expected you to represent me in this discussion. That was always the subtext. Mm. I thought you were going to be my voice in this conversation and you didn't meet that expectation and I just can't do it anymore. Now, we've held on to some of those guys and I stay in close conversation with them. It means a lot to me when someone who's much more conservative than I am hangs in with us and pushes back on me and challenges our dialogue. But It taught me a lot about partisanship. It was like a crash course in the polarization that we read about all the time to have it directed at me as this bucket that was supposed to carry everyone's views of what it meant to be conservative in 2015. Oh, man, that's interesting. And it actually sounds like a lot of pressure because by being Beth from the right, you were an avatar, a stand-in for Mm -hmm. something that maybe you weren't personally. And it sounds like just hearing you talk and having engaged with your work, you're willing to change your mind. You're willing to explore new ideas. And I would say that tribalism in general, people who are really committed to their tribe, they are very rarely open to changing their views. They have an argument for why they believe what they believe that they probably probably got from their tribe and they're going to stick to it. They're going to stick to their guns. I want to circle back to this conversation about how you guys made that transition from you being Beth from the right to, well, Beth from a different side (laughs) later on. But I want to talk for a second about political hobbyists. So one of the challenges that I see today is that we've got more political hobbyists than ever. And let me just define that for a second. Political hobbyists are people who spend a lot of time reading or watching the news and opinion pieces, but aren't particularly involved in the political process locally. They spend a lot of time worrying what's happening on the federal level and federal elections and the Supreme Court. But again, they're not super active in local institutions. So do you guys think that political hobbyism is a problem today? I don't know if it's a problem. I think it's definitely something that's happening. I think hobbyist is probably too generous because that's just consuming entertainment, right? Like that's just engaging with information or, again, just pure entertainment in a way that requires almost no action. I mean, I guess voting, which is important. I don't want to downplay that as an action-oriented step. I want everyone for all time to vote. But I do think that it gives the impression that consuming that information is taking action. I also just think it makes everybody an anxious mess. Hmm. I think it just creates enormous amounts of anxiety on one side and anger on the other, or a mix of the two in a really damaging way. I don't know. I even struggle to use the word damaging because I think our higher voter turnout is a result of that. Like, (laughs) and I want high voter turnout. I want high voter turnout. And You know, people are voting because they feel like the stakes are higher and they feel like the stakes are higher, not because, I mean, in some cases, because they're going to their local school board meetings and are like, what is happening here? But also sometimes because they're not engaging and they're just reading that infotainment that's bubbling up to the top where it's like a mix of news and opinion and it's hard to distinguish between the two. And so I think it's a mixed bag at best (laughs) where you do get people engaging. So, I mean, look, we are political Content. I mean, I think you could argue that we're even political entertainment to a certain extent. We don't hesitate to make our audience uncomfortable and we are not beholden to advertisers in the same way I think people in other political spaces are. But 
people engage with our product and our content, and then all of a sudden they are doing things like voting for the first time or running for office for the first time or showing up at a local school board meeting for the first time. And I think that's incredibly valuable and important. But I also see so many people in my life that just consume it as sort of this almost distraction yeah, in really harmful ways. Well, I think it has the power to induce anxiety precisely when you feel the most powerless. And you will feel powerless if you aren't engaged at a local level. If you aren't doing anything, you feel powerless to change things. And you brought up increased voter turnout. I think one of the fascinating things is, yes, we've seen some increased voter turnout, but when you get to local elections, smaller elections, we haven't necessarily seen the same kind of growth in those elections that we've seen in these big federal elections, which does make me ask a question. I mean, do you think that there's a risk to being too fixated on national politics in particular? I think everyone has their work to do. And some Mm -hmm. people are always going to be more engaged at the national level, and that's okay. Where I think it becomes a problem is when you don't know that about yourself and you hear a conversation like this one and you say, oh, I really should get more involved in local politics. But then you show up carrying those national issues and bringing (laughs) them into the school board, right? Where the real issue at the school board is what are we going to do about all these students who have outstanding lunch balances, but you walk in ready to talk about book banning or something. So to me, it's just, can you figure out what your work is to do in the conversation and where you can plug in best. And getting involved locally doesn't necessarily mean running for local office or supporting local candidates. It could mean saying, wow, it's awfully hard to get information about my local ballot. How could we do a better job sharing that information? Or what's going on in my business around how we treat each other and issues of dignity and equity or income? You know, there are tons of ways to contribute locally that don't involve ever being the mayor. And I think people kind of confuse that too. I wish people, we could just take their hands and say, hey, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. You can do work around politics, but you can't fix politics. Like, that's not available to us as individuals, even incredibly powerful individuals run up to the limits of their power. And so I think that releasing that sort of pressure to say everything you think is important, you need to get involved in some sort of truly impactful way is where we get in trouble. You know, both of us hosted what we called ballot clubs before the midterm elections, where we just invited our friends and family over to work through those ballots, to go from the top of the national ticket. We had a lot of information down to like constable, including like, what is a constable? What do they do? (laughs) Yeah, I thought those were only in the UK. No, we We have have constables here in Kentucky and you elect them. It's the weirdest. (laughs) But it was nice. It was impactful. It was empowering. And it wasn't all a positive experience. There were parts of the ballot that left all the people in the ballot club feeling really discouraged, though, the fact that they were unopposed. But I think that that's important. That's work to do. That's work that takes you out of your own head and takes you off social media and into engaging with your fellow citizens in a really, really important way. Yeah. In your book, you talk about how you've both made the choice to be involved in local politics or local institutions. So, you know, I'm thinking about things like the city council or the school board, the Rotary Club, the PTA, the HOA, the church. And you've talked about how that is really the natural training ground for navigating political disagreements. Why do you think that's the case? Well, those are spaces where the people who are willing to do something have an extraordinary amount of influence. They are also places where you have to constantly observe the impact of your actions. You know, national politics is tempting and can be a good distraction because you can get really hot about something and fire off a very sharply worded statement about it and never see the hurt that that causes someone else or the damage that might transpire if everything you wanted came true. You don't have to see the impact. 
And locally, when you're operating in a church and you're talking about (laughs) anything, anything as simple as like, should we repair this door or not? You are going to run up against the resistance of other humans and their priorities and see the direct result of how you have contributed. And it is an incredibly humbling experience and an eye-opening experience. And I think it really is the work of being a human who's growing and developing over time. Yeah, I had an experience of this recently. We had David French on the podcast, and I was trying to give him some examples to talk to Christians about how to navigate issues. And I brought up an example of a decision that was made by our school board. And one of the school board members in town reached out to me afterwards really nicely. And we had this amazing two-hour conversation about that issue and why he voted the way he voted and the discussion that he had. But it highlighted for me the exact point that you made, which is it's easy to talk about things, even on a podcast, and forget that that has impacts on real-life people. The beauty of that was, if I was talking about some school board off in California where I don't live, no one would have ever reached out and said, hey, can we have a conversation about that? The beauty is that because it was in my town, we got to have a really productive conversation with one another. And I had to reflect on, hey, maybe I got some things wrong here. Maybe I misunderstood some details and even changed my mind on a few issues. There was a real beauty there. So how has your experience in local politics, local institutions, how has it helped you navigate disagreement? I mean, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe doing this for the first time and they know I'm going to come up against disagreement with the people who are in the room with me. How do you navigate that? I ran for city commission in my town. I served a single term. And, you know, what I learned really even before I ran, because I was such an outwardly political person, is how hungry people are to engage, engage, not just fight, not just argue, not debate, but engage. This stuff is important to people, especially as more of our politics is driven by identity, Hmm. And they want to feel heard and they want to feel seen. That's true of humans in most situations, including in church congregations. And so I think that just keeping that at the center of your sort of vision and scope as you engage with people, like this person wants to feel seen and they want to feel heard just like I do, Hmm. is really, really important because I think we get on the defensive or, you know, we have some goals in mind or we forget that the most we can do is influence each other, not control one another. And we just lose sight of that. And then we get adrift and then we get defensive and then they get defensive and there can be shame involved. And that really shuts the conversation down. And if we can just keep that sort of responsive instead of reactive energy that they want to feel seen and heard like I do, it can go a long way. Hmm. You know, my experience is more concentrated in business and the nonprofit space than in the civic space. And I love being in civic spaces and nonprofit spaces because unlike business where you kind of bring this mindset of we can't make everyone happy, we just have to make a decision that advances our strategy and go. When you're in a church or you're in a town hall or a PTA meeting, that's just not the truth of it. It's true that not everyone will be happy, but everyone does belong. And it's not a situation where it's like, well, if you don't like it, there's the door. We'll hire someone who can replace you. We have to continue on together. And local spaces are a really good reminder that we have to continue on together. We have to be able to figure it out. And I feel like it would be so much healthier for our national discourse if we talked online (laughs) the way we talk at a church meeting or at the PTA or whatever organizations we're talking about, as though we're talking to real people who are sitting across the table and like you guys said, have feelings. One of my concerns is I think about these institutions being 
being the natural training ground for navigating disagreement is that part of me fears that you have to have a certain level of privilege to participate in these kinds of things. And here's what I mean. Generally speaking, you have to have a certain amount of free time, which you might not have if you're working multiple jobs. Depending on the institution, like you think about PTAs, HOAs, access to those things requires that you live in certain neighborhoods. And so you have to have a certain socioeconomic level. And why I bring that up is it means that in those institutions, it often means that the people who are sitting there, there might be some diversity of thought, but there might not be socioeconomic diversity simply, again, because of the fact that hey, I don't have the time to do this, or I don't live in that neighborhood or this area where we have these kinds of conversations. So how do you guys navigate that? I mean, what do you do for people who they're like, yeah, I would love to be a part of these things, but I can't because of my life. I mean, that's something we can't control on an individual level. Our systems are built in a way that really rewards that sort of access. Even my run for city commissioner, it was a part-time position. It paid very little, and it took enormous time and energy for me to get elected. Hmm. And money that I was able to do only really because my husband had a good, well-paying job and I had the flexibility of being sort of a part-time stay-at-home mom, part-time social media consultant, and baby new podcaster, right? And so, you know, that's true of so many of our state legislators that are part-time gigs, like that nobody could really do if they had a full-time nine-to-five job. And so I think there's some real structural things we need to look at as Americans at both the local, state, and national level about that sort of access and the resources that are required to not only run for public office, but to win and then to actually govern. And I think that there are things that can be done. And again, it's like, is that your work to do? Is that something that fires you up? Do you feel some like reform solutions that are available to you? They happen. Like we were just talking the other day that one thing that would really help in our winner take all system and I think could trickle down into the types of people that run is ranked choice voting. Yeah. And when we started talking about that on our podcast, it was like a gleam in somebody's eye. And now you have full on states doing it. Alaska's doing it. You know, like it is getting worked out. They are figuring out how this works in a lot of places across the country. And that's very, very encouraging to me. And also a reminder of what old podcasters we are and how long we've been at this. But what I've been saying a lot is like, there's no stasis in American politics. Whatever you think the problem is, the issue is like, we're going to work on it. I mean, think about back in the early 1900s when it was like state legislators picking senators. That was in the Constitution. We had to pass an amendment to open up greater access to those particular political offices and make it less of a sort of elite election. I'm using the term election very loosely. And we did it. We did it as Americans. We worked through that during the progressive era and we made some of those big changes and we'll continue to do that. We'll continue to work on these things and open it up to more and more people because I think you're right. It is definitely a socioeconomic issue right now. But one thing you can do at the individual level, I totally agree with Sarah, it's a systems issue, but at the individual level, one thing you can do is be the person who says, who's not in this meeting who should be here? Who's not Mm -hmm. being considered right now? Whose perspective have we missed as we've talked about this? And how can we get that perspective here? Even if these folks who we are missing cannot sit on the board with us, how can we engage them more effectively? And sometimes it's saying, you know what, I'm going to decline that board seat. I know someone who would be fantastic and I'm going to go to them and help you recruit them and see how I can support them being in this position. Yeah, that's great. This is one of my apologetics defenses, if you will, of the church. And I don't want to paint an overly idealistic picture with what I'm about to say, because of course we could think of churches that don't fit this model. But a healthy church that's doing what it's supposed to do should actually have a lot of socioeconomic diversity inside of it. And it should be putting people alongside each other, business owners and single moms who are coming from very different parts of the world. And I think that one of the costs of the decline of the institution of the church, especially in rural in poorer areas of the country is that people lost an institution where they could have a sense of belonging and voice and shaping what's happening around them. I mean, this goes back to the Donald Trump phenomenon 
phenomenon in some ways. I mean, the areas that were most likely to nominate him in the primary were primarily these areas where actually the church had kind of evaporated and there wasn't a lot of institutional trust. Do you guys think that the church can play a significant role in helping training people for disagreement and helping reduce anxiety by giving them places where they can actually have a voice and change what's happening around them? What do you mean by church? (laughs) I'm saying church writ large. That word's doing a lot of work there. (laughs) Yes. Do I think that Christians who, you know, subscribe to certain tenets of faith can be the church out there and show that to people? Absolutely. Do I think some institutions that describe themselves as the church are doing the exact opposite? Absolutely. That word's doing a lot of work there. You know, all I can do is tell you in my experience, I've had both good and bad wrapped up in that word. Even inside the same congregation, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and in some ways I learned at that place that I did have a sense of belonging, that people were looking out for me, that they were invested in me, that they were protecting me. And then I also received some really harmful messages, particularly around sexuality and even politics and like women in leadership. And now I'm in a different church congregation where I do, you know, think that it offers me that sense that there's a net. Not only that I belong, but that there are people that are there holding me and my children. You know, and you can hear the emotion in my voice because that's incredibly beneficial. And I see that absence in other people's lives, in my family and my friends. And I want that for them. But I think it's really complicated. And many of us in the faith and many of us who consider ourselves of the church and many institutions that describe themselves as the church. We have a lot of work to do with people. Beth, anything you would add to that? My church is definitely the most diverse place that I spend time along about every dimension. And I particularly value the generational diversity in church. There are not a lot of places where you Mm -hmm. get to have kids and senior citizens together and everyone in between, lots of different life experiences put in one place, lots of different abilities, lots of different ways that you can be a family under one roof. And I really do value that. So yes, I think the church can serve us tremendously in this respect. I worry though that when I say that, it sounds like churches should be rolling out some new program to get at it. And the way that I think church can be most impactful in our politics is really to give more people that sense of belonging and that sense that I am known here and I am cared for here. And that is an intimacy that I don't think you can program. I think it really is just the heart of the church and the people who attend it and their intention to know and care for one another. It's a much bigger lift than rolling out, you know, how the church can heal the American divide 101. Like it would be easier to come up with some curriculum that we all start doing. But I think the harder work ahead of us is that sense of belonging for all of the diverse people who gather. Yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. The church is one of those rare institutions that can give a wide variety of people a deep sense of belonging. And part of this, I think, also comes out of American history. I mean, every nation has maybe different institutions that have been the places where those kinds of social bonds formed. But in America in particular, less so now, but in the past, the church has historically been one of those gathering places. I think about my friends who are in the black church, for example, and I remember talking to them because I was discussing with them, hey, you guys talk a lot more about politics at your church than we talk about it at our church. And he made this amazing point to me. He goes, well, that's because we didn't have a public school. 
Square. And so the Mm. black church was the place where everybody came together and we could talk about anything. And I thought, actually, that's right. There's a real beauty here to the church being a belonging place, a gathering place for people inside of community. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I want to transition and talk about social media a little bit. Um, Anyone who listens to this, I promise, is totally aware of the problems created by social media. It polarizes us. It dehumanizes us. And it only goes to the gain of a very small number of corporations. I know that both of you have mentioned and engaged with Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism, which is excellent. So I know you know what the problems are, but I want to start with the positives. What good can come from social media in our politically polarized landscape? Well, I actually thought about this a second ago where you said if we could just engage with each other in social media, like there's a real person Mm. there. And I think there are spaces where that happens. For sure. I have a disabled son and I belong to, you know, Facebook groups with parents whose children share the same challenges my son has. And it's incredibly beneficial and it's an incredible resource. And I do feel like they, you know, see me as a real person. And it's also a really interesting place to watch people navigate those. I mean, most of those groups just take like a really hardcore stance. We're not going to get like a hard, hard boundary around politics. Interesting. Which I think is fascinating to watch. I would be interested in some groups who don't take as hard of a line and how they navigate that. (laughs) I have not found any, but I bet they're out there. Look, we have an amazing community surrounding our podcast. I mean, it just exists on the internet. (laughs) We met one of our listeners for the first time, and he's been a listener for seven years. We met him in real life for the first time this weekend, and it was incredible. But I mean, like, He's been a person in my life for a long time, even though I've never met him in person. You know, we have so many people like that. I have some listeners. I joke, we have a listener named Liz. I'm like, I love her more than some of the members of my family. I've never met her in person. (laughs) But I just adore her. And, you know, I think that that is porous, that parasocial relationship. It is like this weird thin place where both really good and really bad things can happen and where you can sort of breach the divide and find real connection with people and and form relationships. And I think it's really, really beautiful. You know, I can't imagine my life without the community of our listeners Mm. that is formed online. 
many of whom know me better than I know them, but in a way I do know them, you know? And so, I mean, I think it's been a beautiful blessing in my life. And so I try to always temper my criticism of online spaces, knowing that an online space has helped me create this life that I love. Do you think, maybe this is from your community, but do you think there's a way to talk about politics on social media without just creating a radioactive swamp? Most of the time, but not always (laughs) on a good day. Even in our community, there are times when it goes off the tracks because people are people. And in any space, people are occasionally a radioactive swamp. We just are. Do you guys ever go off the rails? Yeah, of course we do. And we have to bring ourselves back in. We've apologized a lot over seven years. I've changed my mind a ton over seven years. Fortunately, changing my mind is one of my favorite things. I know that's not a typical characteristic of people, but I love it. I think that it's just important to not give up. And that's why a community online where people are regularly interacting, you can have it go off the tracks and get it back on because Mm -hmm. there's some context and there's some shared agreement and we all want to continue to be there together. It is the random in and out, the dropping in and out that we do to each other online that doesn't work. And then I think people are realizing more and more doesn't work. And I try to have some grace for us. We talked in an episode about how social media really is kind of like a meteor that hit the dinosaurs for us. Our brains are not ready for this. We are still figuring out what it does to us. And there are some positives and some negatives and this whole territory of unknown So I try to just remember we are in the early stages of this and we're figuring it out. And I think we're shedding some of the garbage as we go and finding some of those beautiful spaces like Sarah described. And that's just going to continue to be a work in progress. I love what you just said about apologizing. If someone asked me, hey, how do I know if I'm not being a radioactive person online? My answer is, unless you're just lurking and not saying anything controversial about absolutely anything, the only way you can know for certain is that you've apologized at some point (laughs) publicly on your social media. I have to apologize, to be honest, more frequently than I wish I had to. And that's good for me. It's kind of a crucible. It reminds me before I hit that tweet button, okay, am I going to be on my feed in about 12 hours telling everybody? I'm sorry for this bad thing that I just said about that person. It slows me down. And of course, that's a gift. I want to be slowed down. I don't want to say those things about people. So I think that's a really beautiful principle. Any other principles you would add, though, for how to engage with social media? I think keeping in mind that so often on social media, we're just lacking context. You know, Mm. you're engaging with people who you don't sit across the table with. Like, I do think there's a lot of political conversation that would be better if we just kept it at the kitchen table where you can just sound off and say whatever you want and get it off your chest and not have it, you know, susceptible to sort of the public thumbs up or thumbs down. Does it matter? Do you want to get involved in Facebook ninja with like your, you know, husband's elementary school teacher? Probably not. Like it doesn't matter. And like really thinking about like, before I engage in this person, what's the context of our relationship? Do we even have one? Or is this just a connection via Facebook is helpful to remember? I want to be humble about this because I recognize I'm probably getting worse at engaging on social media because I don't do it much anymore. I have a podcast where I get to say everything I want to say about politics. And if people want to hear from me, they can go there. And so I don't really spend much time talking politics on Facebook or Twitter or wherever the young people are now. (laughs) But what I do think is helpful in text messages for me is to describe all of the things that someone would perceive if we were using our voices and faces. So saying things like, I think that this is going to read as defensive. I want you to know that's not how I am approaching it. I might sound upset here. I'm really not. I'm curious. 
or I am feeling a little tender right now and that's probably coming across. Just the more you can add that context that the technology takes away from us, I think it slows things down as you were describing and reminds us there's a lot going on here and I don't get to see every bit of it. Oh, that's really good. And text messages are a form of digital communication. And of course, mm-hmm. especially on text chains, that can be a place where people get fired up and defenses get riled because other people are watching, listening in. You know, I think God gave us the gift of emojis, so why not use them? Sometimes mm-hmm. that can... Nah, <laughs> they're cringe. Haven't you heard? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a millennial. I can keep using gifts and emojis. I've been told those are millennial things now. So I'm going to fully embrace it. You know, you guys are no longer Beth from the right and Sarah from the left, or I guess you're still Sarah from the left. You are both Democrats now, if I understand correctly. Beth, we already talked about this, but it seems like you never sat easy with any political party. And as you describe that experience, I mean, you just said, hey, I love changing my mind. And I'm thinking, you and me both, I love changing my mind. And you said, hey, I kind of sit loosely to some of these groups. I'm like, yeah, me too. That's exactly how I feel. And so I'm just curious, you ended up choosing to register as a Democrat. Help me understand why that was important for you to do. Why not just be an independent? Oh, that's a really simple question for me. It's because we have closed primaries in Kentucky. I was wondering if that was the case. (laughs) I cannot vote in a primary if I'm not registered with a political party. And that's unacceptable to me. That's a dumb rule. We should change all those. We should change that rule. If we changed it, I would absolutely be an independent. That's a much clearer reflection of where I sit on the political spectrum now. Although I'm sure there are people who are listening, who listen to our podcast and would disagree. I'm way too conservative for some people and way too liberal for others. But (laughs) I felt that showing my kids, especially that we vote in every single election was too important to resist that democratic label. I think a lot of people feel like, oh my gosh, you are really crossing a Rubicon if you take the other party's label on. And it just didn't feel that way to me. The actual impact of the decision is what I cared about. And not for nothing, I wish people, you know, I am a Democrat. I will be a Democrat until I die. I'm moderately tribalized according to your quiz results. (laughs) But I wish people could bring the energy to it that I do, which is not that they're infallible. It's just that they're my people. So like, you know, you can't talk about my mama, but I can. I think about Democrats the way I think about like my cousins or the people... (laughs) are like sort of my loose associates around town. Like, I don't agree with everything they do. I'm happy to criticize them and show up and be sort of a force. Listen, I almost got kicked out of my local Democratic Party because they found, (laughs) like I said, at a Democratic event, in fairness, that I voted for a Republican. It's not like I exited in a huff. I was like, rolled my eyes. I went to my little baby politics trial, stood up for myself, one, thank you very much, and moved on with my life because it's just a coalition of humans and humans are weird and also wonderful. I love that line in your book where you said every human contains both glory and ruin. I think that's so beautiful. And, you know, I just hold that, hold that when you're in any loose organization of human beings, be it like Kiwanis, your church congregation, or the Democratic Party. Oh, I love that because it is so rare to meet someone who is willing to courageously critique their own side in love. Like you just said, the same way I'd tell my family member if they were, you know, stepping out of line, hey, let's have a conversation about this. And what I love about it is one of the things we said on our podcast is that we're not trying to convince people to leave behind their political parties, even their political allegiances. We're trying to relativize them to some degree. And I think one of the ways that you can do that is by saying what you're saying, which is I understand this group's place 
place in my life. And part of how I do that is by being willing to critique the group when I think that they get something wrong. And I think if more people who identified as partisan would take on that kind of attitude, it would be, well, at least to me, much more appealing <laughs> to be a part <laughs> of one of those groups. As it stands, our primaries aren't closed, so I don't have any vested interest in identifying <laughs> one way or another. Well, and I just think it would be healthy for all of our institutions if we could hold our role inside of them less like a consumer and more like a participant. Mm. You know, like we're not making purchasing decisions and the way we talk to each other, even in relationships within these institutions, you know, I think everybody is just terrified to critique or to take on any criticism because it feels like because politics is so identity driven. Well, it's about me. No, it's not about you, baby. I just think this is wrong. Like, I don't think you're terrible. I just think this is wrong. We got to have a little space for that, like a little space to say no. And also, I still love you. Like I do that to my kids all the dang time. And I think that there's a hunger for that, honestly. I think people are a little hungry for someone to just be honest with them and then not feel like they're being canceled because that's not what I'm doing. I'm not canceling the Democratic Party or anybody inside of it. I'm just saying, I think you got that wrong. I'm still here. I would be thrilled if we just got rid of the word canceled in general. Word. It when is, is that going to become cringe? Because then we'll leave it behind. Once Gen Z decides that term is cringe, we'll all be done. And we'll be thankful for it. <laughs> and I will be thankful for it when it happens because I'm not even sure what it means. Beth, you've talked about how you are more of a question asker. And I get the sense maybe that you desire a bit more peace in relationships than Sarah does. I don't know if that's right or wrong. You can talk to that. Sarah, you've already said it. You run hot. You like to debate. You're not bothered by direct communication. I'm a lot like you. I have fun sitting across the table from someone who disagrees with me and going at it for a while. And then we're going to hug and I feel great and he feels great. And we're like, this is awesome. This was so much fun. <laughs> like, isn't that just another type of piece? That's all I'm arguing. I totally agree. It's the piece that I want. It's just not the piece everybody at the dinner table wants. <laughs> <laughs> but Sarah, I'm curious. Do you ever worry that your personality makes it harder for you to change your mind? I mean, I think that I have to watch this. Let's be honest. I'm an Enneagram one. I have to watch it because I think, you know, I can intermingle sort of the passion I bring to my beliefs with the amount of control I feel over the situation. I use that as a stand-in for control, right? I feel so strongly about this. That means I understand it. That means I have some sort of control. I can mm. like sort of walk that line and convince myself. But in another way, you know, I very much value in myself the clarity with which I feel about things. You know, I'm a lot of things. Um, neurotic is not one of them. <laughs> and so, you know, I value that. I value that sense of clarity I bring to things. I like to think about myself, Beth might be a better person to ask or my husband, I don't know, about how much that clarity can ebb into intractability. But I like to think I take a lot of movement and adaptability along with that. I'm not invested in a lot of things. Even like I said with the Democrat, I can feel strongly. I have this weird ability to feel both very strongly about something and not particularly invested in the outcome. It's like what we've been back to the beginning. It's like most people just want to be seen and heard. They don't necessarily need to be right all the time. And I think we mix those things up. And so I have that ability to sort of express how I feel. And then a phrase I love from Beth is be invested in the decision, even if I didn't agree with the solution or the outcome, like we're going to disagree and then move forward together. Hmm. Like I said, I have to watch my sort of interplay with control but it's really an internal struggle with myself. It's not with other people. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't feel that sense to like, need you to agree with me. I just need to express how I feel. And I think that's probably more common 
than we think it is. Oh, that's really good. Beth, I'm curious about you because someone said that you run a little bit cooler. And I remember in the book, you talked about how you love to ask questions and draw people out. And I'm curious, do you ever worry that your personality puts you at the risk of being too wobbly? I'm too open to changing my mind. I'm shaking my head. No one can see that. <laughs> yeah. Wobbly is never, ever a use that word I would use to describe her. Well, I hope that I am a steady person who just enjoys understanding what all is happening around me. I think my risk is viewing that coolness with a sense of arrogance. Hmm. There is a risk for those of us who say, well, I'm politically independent in viewing that as like the most powerful, reasonable, rational, intelligent thing we could possibly be. You know, Sarah is not intractable because she's too curious. She likes ideas too much to be stuck. And what I really value in her degree of affiliation, her loyalty to the Democratic Party, her loyalty to different people, is that she is willing to be vulnerable and keep a stake in it, even if she doesn't like everything that's happening. If you are more like me, it's easy to just feel like you're constantly floating above and never take a stake in something that's imperfect. And so that's the risk that I'm constantly trying to check in myself. I came up against it this week. My county is very, very red. It is kind of an old Republican red in the business community and in the rural community, it is the new populist red. Either way, extremely difficult for a Democrat to win a local race here. We don't even have them on our ballot. Everything is won or lost in the Republican primary. And I was thinking about whether the forward party, you know, Andrew Yang's project with a bunch of other people might be able to make some progress here. And I have signed up for their emails and put myself on the list and have just been wrestling with how much of a stake would I want to take in this? Would I lose some objectivity? Would I lose some status? Would I lose something? And it's like a very selfish, arrogant list of questions that I've been running through and thinking through this. And so I think that's my risk more than being too wobbly. It's how invested am I willing to let myself and how much of the accompanying vulnerability am I willing to take with that? Oh man, that's so insightful. I connect with you because I can wear my own independence as a bit of a badge of honor. You know, I must be more intelligent than everyone else because I don't fall down on one side on anything. So clearly I've thought harder than you have about it. But I love how you frame that as saying, well, is that just a refusal to invest? And of course we have to be a part of a political process. So it's easy to kind of stay above the whole thing, but accomplish nothing in the process. So I love that. And part of what I wanted to ask us was because I really appreciate the difference in your personalities. And I wanted to draw out what are the risks of, you know, different kinds of personalities and how do you address those? Because my guess is, again, people listening to this, they might be more like one of you or the other, or maybe someone who's not even on this show. But if we can get good at assessing what are the risks that come with it, you know, I think we can engage in the political process a bit more honestly and a bit more effectively. I'm also really curious to know this. You guys, again, started off Beth from the right and Sarah from the left. How do you navigate now not having someone who maybe self-identifies as conservative on your podcast? Do you ever fear that you're risking avoiding some hard conversations unintentionally? But this is from a guy who, I mean, my co-host and I are probably both independent. So it's not like, I guess we've got as much diversity as I like to pretend we do. But I'm just curious. I mean, do you ever fear that that's happening? Well, first of all, I would say it's not a risk. It's a strength. When you have people of differing personalities and differing approach, like, not to enter into a very cliche like diversity is a strength, but it is. The more humanity you can bring to something, the better off you are. Now, the reason I don't worry as much about us not having a self-identified Republican is because we live in a two-party system. 
Um, And so that binary dominates everything. It dominates the media coverage. It dominates the conversation. It dominates sort of the partisan strategy. And so like, yeah, I mean, I think if we were in a parliamentary system where we were like building coalitions, I would feel a little bit differently, but like, I'm not worried that we're all going to forget that there's a Republican position or a Republican party or a shifting Republican narrative. Like that's inescapable. And so that's, I think why I was never really worried about that. You know, I think that the way our show started was an easy on-ramp and an elevator pitch and a way to describe things and invite people into the conversation because our party system dominates in such a way that people think you can't have a conversation without both self-identified people present. Like people still get mad. I thought this was going to lead with curiosity, but they're both agreeing with each other. As if you can't be curious, like you can only be curious in the face of disagreement. That's so silly. Yeah. That's not what defines curiosity. And that's not what defines neutral, which is a word we've sort of never attached ourselves to, because I don't think it exists with humanity for what it's worth. You achieve some sort of non-biased neutral understanding only by the presence and transparency of many opinions and perspectives, not by this sort of lofty place where some of us can climb and some of us are never able to get there. Like, I just don't buy that. And so I worry less about the lack of that sort of self-identified Republican, because I think it's so strong in our national discourse. And also, I just think you can have curious, really interesting conversations in the way that I hope that we do. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, even just on the level that it seems to me right now, if you wanted to have a conversation with all the views, well, one, you would need way more than two people uh, yeah. because <laughs> there's a lot more than two views out there. And even looking at both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, there are fractures that are dividing these parties in some pretty significant ways. So people inside the parties don't <laughs> agree on everything at all. And so I think there's some wisdom saying, look, we're just trying to be straightforward and honest about where we're at. And I can really deeply appreciate that. I want to give you guys a chance to take a shot at me here in just a second. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you how I think about voting, okay? And it's a basic two-part test. I'll tell you who I sold it from. I sold it from David French, but it's what I've kind of gone by in recent years. And I want you guys to tell me, am I naive and idealistic with these two rules I'm about to lay out? Okay, so here's the first one. The candidate needs to have broad alignment with my political values and vision. I won't vote for you if you don't have that. Broad agreement, not total, but broad. Number two, the candidate needs to have a character commensurate with the office he or she is running for. If you don't meet either of those two, I will not vote for you. I will vote third party or I will do a write-in, but I will not vote for you if you don't meet both my qualifications. So what do you think? Am I a hopeless idealist? Am I dumb? Well, I don't think you're not going to call you dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I was baiting. (laughs) You are stupid, sir. (laughs) Look, I think that's a really good test. I think that we have a lot of conversation happening in this country about the duopoly of the two parties and about strategic voting and about when it's worth making a compromise on one of those parameters because of the stakes associated with a particular election. And that's something that we each have to resolve within ourselves. What I most want from candidates right now is a sense that people will do the homework. I am really concerned that we're electing a whole lot of people to go on podcasts and (laughs) on cable news. Or host their own. Don't forget. Or host their own and hire communication staff to tweet out sick burns of other people who are not so interested in reading briefing books and attending committee hearings and asking questions. And so maybe that fits into bucket number two for you, that character commensurate with the office. But for me, 
I just want people who will take the job seriously, even people who I really disagree with on some high stakes issues. I want a sense of reality and gravity to come back to public office. So I would say you are not hopelessly naive. Those are excellent criteria. And also different elections ask different questions. And so how you shift and apply that list might need to change over time. Maybe you just gave me a third category. You're going to make it harder for me to vote for people. Now I'm going to add, <laughs> you're making me think about Yuval Levin and his point that we've hollowed out our institutions such that people view Congress as a platform for celebrity, not doing the thing Congress does, which is legislate, of course. <laughs> but I'm curious, Sarah, what, what do you have to say? I would go in the other direction. I don't want to make it harder. I want it to make it easier. You get another chance. So you get to do it every two years or six years or four, depending on the term. But I really wish we would just take some pressure off ourselves as voters and the people we're voting for in a way, because I think that would lower the stakes on the elections overall and help us to make more, oh God, I hate using the word rational, but rational decisions. I ran for office. And as I was listening to your criteria, I thought like, how would you know? <laughs> people mm-hmm. thought they knew me. Yeah. And I think I won because I gave people a chance to meet me. I knocked on 5,000 doors. I would say 10 to 20% of people opened the door probably 10, probably just 10% of people got the chance to talk to me. And it was for what, 10 minutes or less. So what exactly are you assessing my character and values on, right? Like that's what's so hard. I wish we could just ease up a little bit. Like we're not assessing people's character. We're just thinking about, will they do a good job in this particular role? Not that I don't want people of character. I do. And I think you can assess a lot about someone's character by the way they handle their candidacy. And also sometimes that falls short. I think George H.W. Bush was a man of enormous character in a lot of ways. And also I think that he made some decisions around the campaign in Dukakis that were not ethical. I think both things can be true. It's not really like when you are a candidate, especially at the national level, these decisions are coming at you at a way that you can really just tap in with your values, right? You have enormous amount of pressure, enormous amount of people talking to you, And like, paradoxically, also, I think it's a great test of character. Like, you know, I can also point to candidates and say, like, their character was on full and total display the whole time. (laughs) I think what's missing maybe is a lot of grace for ourselves as voters and for real live human beings as candidates. You know, one of the best pieces of political advice I ever got is when I met Bill Clinton in a book signing line. And I said, I want to run for office. What's your number one piece of advice? And he said, meet a lot of people. They're going to try to paint you as a two-dimensional character. And the more people you meet, the more you will be able to relate to them as a fully formed three-dimensional human being. Hmm. And I do think, you know, less than character and less than even values, what does come across with candidates is their relationship to humans, like how they feel about people. Do they like people or do they not like people? And that comes across at varying levels, depending on that particular politician skill. And I think that matters. I think that's why you see like people with abhorrent policies, like Jesse Helms staying in office for a long time. There are enormous stories about him, like walking into places and knowing every single person there by name, by family, by history. And, you know, that's always not a really great indicator on someone's values and character, but I think it is important when the job is really about people at the end of the day. Those are fantastic answers. I like asking that question because I always learn something new whenever (laughs) I let people push back at me. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time to be on the podcast today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Can you just let our listeners know how they can connect with you, hear your podcast, check out your book? 
Well, you can find us in all the places you find podcasts and books, but the easiest way to get in touch with us and see kind of everything that we're doing, our email newsletter, all of that is our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And we would love to hear from you. The more people that join the conversation with us, the more that we learn every time we do this. So we really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. What great questions you had and what a fun conversation. Uh, It was fantastic having you both. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.